Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm speaking with Isabel Taylor, author of The Crown and Its Records, Archives, Access, and the Ancient Constitution in 17th Century England, published by De Gruyter in 2023. Archives are popularly seen as liminal and obscure spaces, a perception far removed from the early modern reality. The Crown and Its Records examines the central English archival system in the period before 1700 in order to highlight the role played by the public records repositories in furnishing precedents for the constitutional struggle between the Crown and Parliament. It traces the deployment of archival research in these controversies by three individuals who were at various points occupied with the keeping of records, and then it concludes by investigating the secretive state paper office and its involvement in the government intelligence network. And today I am joined by author Isabel Taylor. Isabel, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much, Jen. I'm very excited to be here. And so before we jump into talking about your book, I would really love if you could speak a bit about your own background working in and with archives. Um, Could you maybe share a bit about your education background and what brought you to this research on archives um, before um, and in 17th century England? Sure. Now, this is a fairly complicated story, so please bear with me while I try and give a simplified and shortened version of events. So I first came across the Petition of Right during high school, which sparked my interest in the English 17th century. I then studied history, French and German for my undergrad at Mount Allison University in Canada. I took courses in Stuart history with a special focus on the political and constitutional aspects. I was fortunate in being allowed to do research on on the proto-democratic and proto-socialist movements during the English revolutionary time from roughly 1640 to 1660. During my postgraduate legal studies in England, I chose legal history as my elective subject and got to do a research project on the Levellers franchise campaign of the 1640s. Then in 2011, I was chosen for a research scholarship at the University of Tübingen in Germany. I used this time to research my first book on the basis of which my tutor suggested that I should consider a PhD. I had never thought about that before, but a professor at the law faculty, Jan Thiessen, said that he'd be interested in supervising my doctorate in legal history once I had a topic and time to concentrate on it. First, however, I had to focus on my Master of Archival Studies at UBC from 2011 to 13. I settled on archives as a career path, partly because archival science draws on both history and law. While I was at UBC, because of my legal background, I was deployed to analyze the drafts of the European General Data Protection Regulation and their ramifications for archives, which at the time were not good. That turned into a years-long analysis and lobbying effort, which resulted in a number of articles. Although I was very happy with the final form of the regulation, the work did use up most of the free time that I would have spent on the doctorate. And because I had a foreign law degree, I was also required to do a one-year LLM in German law to notionally top it up to the point where I'd be allowed to do a doctorate in legal history. 
I was fortunate to be fully funded by the German Academic Exchange Service, and I used the opportunity to focus on German constitutional law, data protection, and freedom of information in German and Canadian archives. Well, I also did student jobs at the University Archives and the Main State Archive in Stuttgart, so the year enabled me to get my archival career in Germany off the ground. My doctoral supervisor was very patient, encouraging and flexible in the process of settling on a topic for the doctorate. Initially, I began a comparison of archival access in England, France and the German speaking world in the early modern age, which would include the public records and the state paper office in England. But when I was finally able to get to the archives in England in late 2018, the primary sources revealed a new and more exciting idea, which was the involvement of archives in the constitutional turmoil of the 17th century. I realized that I could potentially explore a previously insufficiently examined aspect of a key constitutional turning point, which has been one of the most researched episodes of English history. I received permission from Professor Thiessen to concentrate on that, analyze the new sources in the first half of 2019, started the writing in the, in the second half, and submitted the thesis about a year and a half afterwards. Amazing. It's so incredible to hear the different um, uh, disciplines that kind of came together in, in what you're doing now, and, and also how your, um, your research was really shaped by what you found in the archive, which I know we'll talk more about. Um, so turning to this new book, you've reconstructed the really early history of the English archival system, and part one goes way back to explore very early English attempts at archiving. So leading up to the 17th century, what kinds of archival collections existed and who cared for those collections? In what kinds of attempts do we see at this point in time to make any kind of order out of archives? Okay, so I'm going to focus here on the main repositories, although, of course, aristocratic families and towns had their own collections of documents. The intentionality and order of archival aggregations varied hugely in the period up until the 17th century. So the earliest forerunner of archives in England was the keeping of important records along with jewels, etc., in the sanctuaries of royal churches. And over time, the church, in the wider sense of monastic institutions, not just in the London area, but across the country, became responsible for looking after stores of government records. This led to chaos for the records in the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII, although some of these were rescued by Robert Cotton, whom I'll say a bit more about soon. The judicial courts became increasingly centralised under Henry II in the 12th century and were made stationary in the 13th, whereas before, for example, the Court of Common Pleas used to follow the king around the country, which wasn't optimal for the records. Nevertheless, there was still a lot of disorder and ad hoc storage of the records over the succeeding centuries. A vague convention of transferring older records to the Tower of London began in the reign of Edward I in the 13th century. Up until this point, the records had been kept by the Knights Templar in the complex of buildings around what is now Temple Church in the legal district of London. So you asked about attempts to organise archives before the 17th century. The first major attempt to bring order out of chaos was made by Edward II in 1320. He complained that the records had not been disposed in such manner as they ought to have been for the public service, and ordered the Exchequer staff to arrange and describe all the records in the Exchequer, Treasuries and the Tower of London. 
it seems to have been Exchequer employees who were additionally re required to look after the central archives, including those in the tower. With the increasing prestige of the antiquarian historical research movement in the Renaissance, the official role of keeper of the records in the Tower of London became highly prized. It increasingly went to outside candidates who were known for their historical expertise. It became a very political role over time, especially in the Civil War era with rival parliamentarian and royalist appointments to the job. Not much further happened on the records reform front after Edward II until the reign of Elizabeth, when various interests, including the, the legal profession and the antiquarian movement, begged the Queen to introduce greater order into the records. This resulted in a royal inquiry and orders to move to the Tower various records that were being stored in other places, though not much seems to have come of this. However, the Queen also seems to have ordered an arrangement and description project to centralise England's treaties in the chapter house of Westminster Abbey, which were at the time scattered over various other repositories. This project was carried out in the reign of James I under the archivist and exchequer employee Arthur Agard. By the 17th century, the tower had become the most important repository and most of the older records were to be found there, according to Tuma. This included the public records, i.e. the court records that were accessible to every man. Apart from the cotton collection, which I'll get to in a moment, it seems to have been the most used for constitutional research. In the Tudor era, we also see the beginnings of the King's secret state paper office. This was not publicly accessible, and in the earlier Stuart age, it was headed by the spy Sir Thomas Wilson. <laughs> in parallel, the courtier and private gentleman Sir Robert Cotton began to build up his famous pu publicly accessible archive in the later part of the 16th century. It's often misleadingly referred to as a private library. Cotton assembled many different kinds of unique records and a lot of secret government ones which actually belonged in the King's State Paper Office. This didn't make him very popular with Wilson. Amazing. Thank you for that really, really clear summary of, of where things were at. Um, and so then in part two, you dive into the role of archives in the constitutional struggles in 17th century England. Um, and some of the key players in this, you've already mentioned, but there were a couple of them, Sir Edward Coke, Sir Robert Cotton, John Selden, and William Prine. How did these people use archives to impact the course of government and of legal history at that point in time? Yeah, so this is going to be a really long answer. So I'll, I'll first give a brief sketch of each man and then of the events in which they were involved because there was overlap there. <clears throat> so Prim's an outlier in terms of the time frame in which he was constitutionally active. So I'll discuss his involvement separately at the end. As a judge, Edward Cook made many contributions to the English constitution, notably as Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas in the case of proclamations of 1610. Here he argued that the king could not introduce new offences or change any part of the common law without the consent of Parliament. As an MP, following his dismissal as a judge by James I, Cotton continued to battle for the supremacy of the common law. Sir Robert Cotton was a highly placed reference archivist for the Crown and Parliament, based on his private archive which contained great numbers of state papers. He became an MP and wrote a number of tracts, mostly briefing papers, on political and constitutional subjects based on his archive. 
It's been said that his chief contribution to the constitutional controversies was somewhat indirect in terms of emphasizing the necessity of archival research and modeling precision in citing the sources himself. John Selden learned this precision from Cotton as a student. Selden was unique in his time for his profound expertise in the history of the English Constitution and was probably the first English historian to use archives in what we, we would see as a modern way, attempting to be dispassionate and let the sources speak for themselves instead of trying to shoehorn them into a foregone conclusion. Selden developed the core idea of English constitutionalism, continuity through change, meaning that the nation's development was characterized by a slow evolution consisting of innumerable small adjustments over time based on the accumulation of experience and in response to new circumstances. This idea would be famously articulated by Edmund Burke in the 18th century in reaction to the excesses of the French Revolution, but Selden got there first. Finally, William Prynne, though he hugely admired Selden's research prowess, was completely unlike the others in personality, a ferocious Puritan pamphlet controversialist who was persecuted by the Crown on a number of occasions for his extremely rude attacks on senior churchmen. He really hated the theatre and interesting hairstyles, and he was convinced that there were Jesuit spies everywhere. And these quirks have overshadowed his constitutional involvement, which he began in the 1640s. I'll come to that later. So I'd like to begin with Parliament's protestation of 1621 against the Crown, principally authored by Cook, which argued that the parliamentary privilege of free speech extended to foreign policy and matters of the Crown itself. Although Cook seems to have been more reliant than the others on secondary sources and summaries of case law, he appears to have been involved in analysing the precedents for the protestation. He's known to use the Cotton Collection as well as sources that he owned himself. He had a volume of abstracts of Parliament rolls and a finding aid for the Tower of Records in his private archival collection. As a reaction to the protestation, the Crown imprisoned him in the Tower of London and seized his private archive. And this finding aid was one of the manuscripts that was not returned to him after his release. It is thought that Selden was involved in finding precedents for the protestation, and he was also imprisoned about the same time, which he later stated was for his legal counselling of the pro-freedom side in Parliament, and his private archive was also seized. These seizures of archives can be seen not only as the retaliation by the Crown for the protestation and a way of inhibiting further research, but also a means of finding something with which to incriminate Cook and Selden and justify their arrests after the fact. This, of course, is an expression of the habeas corpus issue that would later come to dominate Parliament's constitutional concerns in the Petition of Right of 1628. The prelude to this was a great highlight of Selden's legal career and of English constitutional history, the Five Nights case of 1627 in the Court of King's Bench. Here Selden acted as attorney for one of the London Knights who had been imprisoned by Charles I for so-called reasons of state after their refusal to pay a forced loan which had been raised by the King without consent of Parliament, so while Parliament wasn't sitting. In the case itself, Selden argued that imprisonment without trial was contrary to Magna Carta and applied unsuccessfully for a writ of habeas corpus to get his client free. The judges postponed a formal judgment on the legality of the Crown's discretionary imprisonment. In the meantime, Sir Robert Cotton wrote a pamphlet containing historical research on the current continental crisis that persuaded the King to summon the fateful Parliament of 1628. 
Before the new parliament met, Cotton hosted the opposition faction in his house, including Cook and Selden. They hammered out the agenda for the new session as the reclamation of English freedoms in reaction to the issues raised in the Five Nights case concerning discretionary imprisonment and habeas corpus. Selden used this session of Parliament as a chance to represent his evidence, most of which had not been addressed by the judges in the trial itself, and arguments from the trial in an attempt to definitively settle these questions of fundamental civil rights. He presided over extraordinary amounts of primary source research in the government archives, while it's thought very likely that Cotton provided a number of key precedents as well. Selden challenged the Crown's attorneys to come in and defend what was done if they can. He was so determined because he knew that if a binding precedent for prerogative imprisonment for nebulous, quote, reasons of state could be smuggled into the common law, it would be the thin end of the wedge. Cook also made a number of very important speeches referring to various precedents. His major focus was on Magna Carta, which he presented as a confirmation of ancient English freedoms, notably the freedom from imprisonment without a prima facie case to answer at common law. His most original constitutional contribution was achieving the acceptance of the writ of habeas corpus as the instrument for the enforcement of this freedom, in part through its portrayal as such in the Petition of Right. The historian John Guy noted that in this session, what seemed to be minor archival de details would constitute the stuff of which history is made, which is a reference to the great sensation that Selden caused with his discovery of a specific court record-keeping issue. To be legally binding and constitute a precedent and a record in the legal sense, a court's decision had to be entered on the official court roll, which really was a roll, a long scroll of parchment sewn onto each other and then sewn up at the end of the court term to prevent tampering. Although there had been no actual judgment in the Five Nights case, the Crown had attempted to force a court employee to forge an entry after the roll had been closed, apparently legitimising the keeping of the Knights in custody. This entry would have stated that the words by His Majesty's special command had been reviewed by the Court of King's Bench and determined to be a satisfactory response to a writ of habeas corpus, even if no specific cause of detention was otherwise specified. If the Crown had succeeded in having this entry forged, this would have potentially made indefinite imprisonment without charge legal. Selden's revelation of this made the MPs furious since it indicated that the Crown had now abandoned any pretense of commitment to the rule of law. The attempted records forgery polarised the conflict between the Crown and the parliamentary side in the debates that followed. It galvanised the Commons into rejecting in all circumstances discretionary powers of imprisonment, even in cases of suspected terrorism like the gunpowder plot or forced taxation. The other major records-related incident and arguably an even more important one, was Selden's debate over two days with the Attorney General on the legality of prerogative imprisonment without charge and the right to habeas corpus. Selden's knowledge of legal record-keeping requirements and precise archival research allowed him to filter out the Attorney General's opposing precedents as invalid. He was devastatingly effective in deploying his expertise in these extremely important, though highly arcane record-keeping rules, to the extent that he, and I think even more than Cook, succeeded in carrying the day where it mattered most, i.e. showing that the weight of valid precedent was on his side and not the Crown's. 
At one point during all of this, the Crown attempted to terrify him and his allies out of conducting any further archival research by spreading the false claim that Selden had destroyed a record in the course of his investigations, which, if true, would have been a capital felony. The ultimate result of these debates was, as previously noted, the Petition of Right, which is the product of Selden's and others' deep research in the archives. Because the Crown and Parliament ultimately failed to reach consensus about the interpretation of the petition, the Crown had Selden and other parliamentary leaders arrested and imprisoned from 1629 to 31, and his archive seized, again for reasons of state. At the same time, it took the unprecedented step of forbidding them access to the public records in the Tower of London. However, it was not possible to prevent the petition of right from becoming a building block of the English, now British, constitution. At the same time, the Crown turned on Cotton, apparently for having made his archive available to the petition's researchers, imprisoned him and locked up his archive on spurious grounds, including that an important state paper had been found in it. Even after Cotton's amnesty, his archive stayed sealed up and he eventually died in 1631 of a broken heart due to his worry about his archive. Cook's papers were seized and searched twice more in 1631, though the context for that isn't entirely clear, and posthumously in 1634, after Cook had been threatening Charles I with an authoritative commentary on Magna Carta. <clears throat> and there was a funny story in which Charles's agent was sent off to find this commentary, which he then locked in a small chest inside a bigger chest uh, for security reasons. And, and these were then both opened up by Charles himself, though unfortunately history doesn't record his reaction. And I like to think that he probably screamed and ran around the room. Anyway, this commentary, which sets Magna Carta at the centre of the English constitution, was eventually published as propaganda by the parliamentary side in 1641, and it would become the foundation of individual freedoms across the English-speaking world. During the revolution, Selden was given the great honour by the commons of being made the keeper of the records in the tower. He attempted to avert war through maintaining a moderate stance in Parliament, and throughout the wars he worked to protect archives from violence and plundering. During the 1640s as well, William Prynne became a constitutional propagandist for the parliamentary side, producing material based on historical arguments. Over the revolutionary era, he began to shift towards a royalist and pro-lords point of view, outraged by the Commons' abolition of the House of Lords. This, he saw, was based on a claim by the Commons to constitutional sovereignty, based again on immemoriality, which in the English legal sense meant existence prior to 1189. Prynne seized upon an archival argument advanced by the royalist theoretician Robert Filmer. We would not be very impressed by it now, considering what we know about the large gaps in the archives, but it really serves to illustrate the strict correspondence theory of truth that most English legal analysts, though not seldom, were working with at the time, that the records were unimpeachable reflections of historical fact. Filmer stated that the earliest extant royal invitation to the Commons to convene came from the year 1265, ergo the Commons had not existed any earlier than that. So the Lords were older than the Commons and therefore could not be abolished by them. This argument helped to motivate Prynne's huge archival and historical projects. In his A Plea for the Lords, he cited Filmer's arguments against the immemorial nature of the Commons and argued for the greater antiquity of, of the Lords as well as for their supreme judicial authority. In urging that the ancient parliamentary roles and journals should be copied and published, he was driven by both partisanship and archival scholarly concerns. 
He wished to save these records from war and fire and also to deploy them in the Lord's cause. The crown was also a part of the ancient constitution, of course, and Prynne played a key role in agitating for its restoration in the form of Charles II in 1660. As an honour and thank you, he was made the keeper of the records in the Tower of London. His multi-volume catalogue of the parliamentary writs of summons to the Commons is essentially an exercise in agitprop rather than a research aid. It marshals huge quantities of archival material to support the points that he makes in the margins of the archival descriptions to show that his view of the ancient constitution is right and the view of opposing proponents of a Commons-focused ancient constitution, such as Cook, whom he repeatedly and viciously attacks, is dead wrong. The end result is extremely repetitive and, as the 19th century archivist C.B. Cooper complained, pretty much unusable. You're much better off looking at the original sources. Despite his attacks on the commons and his fanatical tone, Prynne was not an absolutist. He was an adherent of the common law ancient constitution just as much as many of his opponents, but his vision had different emphases than theirs. Super, thank you. Um, and I know, I mean, I know it's impossible to get into detail of everything that you wrote about in that section. And I hope folks have a chance to pick up the book and read it as well, because the, the details that you share of all those events in the 17th century and, and those individuals and, and their interactions with records, so impressive. Um, but let's shift to the third part of this book where you look at the state paper office. Could you explain what that collection was, why it was created, and what kinds of various efforts at accessioning and classifying materials were made by the State Paper Office? Um, and I would really love if you could talk a little about how those collections played a role in the weaponization of historical research during the political events of that era. Okay, so the State Paper's importance needs to be understood in the context of administrative change in the Tudor era. So the king's secretary was already responsible for coordinating diplomacy and had been since the Middle Ages, but under Henry VIII, domestic business was added under the famous statesman and fixer Thomas Cromwell. This makes sense if you consider the enmeshing of foreign diplomacy and domestic intrigue involved in driving through the English Reformation. So that explains both why these papers from this point on become the chief source of information on English history and why they were also top secret. The SBO also contained much more than just state papers proper. There were espionage reports from the Crown's agents abroad, seized private papers belonging to the Crown's religious and political enemies, code lists used by spies, war intelligence, records of numerous secret trials for treason, etc. So it was a storehouse of ammunition for the Crown to use in defending its own particular interests, which weren't necessarily synonymous with those of the country, perhaps. <laughs> Thomas Wilson, who was its first important keeper, made a report about his classification activities. He came up with a durable system still used now, divided into domestical and foreign. In 1613, he noted that his previous subject-based classification within foreign would have to be replaced by a country-based one, and he didn't sound very happy about it, which led me to suspect that perhaps this was forced on him by outside forces. The categories within domestical, which seemed to have been inspired by a Venetian system, evoke the turbulent times. So regalia contains records concerning his majesty's title to the crown of England and his prerogative, for example. 
The very first item in the category legalia, which follows it, is copies of ancient and modern acts and orders of parliament. Criminalia contained a lot of records on treasons and star chamber matters, examinations, informations and confessions of priests and recusants and such like. Wilson's description shows that the records of Star Chamber, the prerogative law court used to persecute opponents of the crown, which was later abolished by the revolutionary government, were contained in the crown's private collection of manuscripts. Later on, the SPO seems to have become a repository of civil war intelligence, and at some point was turned against the royalist interest by the revolutionaries. We don't know much about the beginnings of the state paper office. The very sparse evidence suggests that it had an ad hoc beginning under Henry VIII. There is a mention of chests for state papers in the monarch's private study, though secretaries of state were loath to go in there because Henry was increasingly volatile in his later years. So it's thought that they had no choice but to take the records home with them. According to McCulloch, when Thomas Cromwell fell from grace with Henry VIII and his archive was seized, his papers contained reams of letters in, though his staff burnt most of his letters out. This suggests that even Cromwell did not trust the chests. The convention of storing records in these chests seems to have broken down completely after Henry's death, partly because of overflow of records, which were then stored diffusely, but were also, according to Wilson, embezzled on a large scale by statesmen who took them home with them. He stated that these problems led to the official founding of the SPO early in James I's reign. Wilson tended to have significant difficulty in accessioning state papers, partly because of the early modern perception that these belonged to their holders, and partly because of the stigma attached to seizures of private archives by the government. He often had to resort to getting individual writs from, from the Crown to obtain papers from statesmen after their deaths or disgrace and dismissal. It didn't help him that he was under the authority of the Secretary of State, the very person from whom he was attempting to accession in the first place. The fact that his office was perceived as an innovation was also a problem, since it meant that some viewed the archive as lacking in legitimacy. Secretary of State Conway told Wilson as much in 1623, and his Dickensianly named servant Peasley sneered at Wilson that it was only a new office. However, Wilson also exceeded his brief by going after papers of senior government officials generally, and he even expected to accession the papers of the Privy Council. He also ghoulishly seized Sir Walter Raleigh's manuscripts immediately after his execution, thereby traumatizing his widow, even though there was no discernible argument for keeping these in the SPO. On the other hand, it seems that correspondence from the Crown's agents on the continent and elsewhere made its way fairly reliably to Wilson and was often sent directly to him. And this was probably because he was still a professional spy with a substantial network. There's a story from 1618 about intelligence sent to Wilson by an English agent in Japan, which affronted James I with the suggestion that the Japanese had grander courts than his. Wilson made detailed lists at regular intervals of the records that he had processed, and it's clear that he was very industrious. Under Wilson's successor Boswell, accessioning became more regular, but also more political as the general temperature rose in the 1630s with a special focus on grabbing Parliament records, which didn't belong there at all, and other such like things, like the last seizure from Cook in 1634 that I've already talked about. So these were things that had no 
right to be in the state paper office if you look at the terms of its establishment. During the revolutionary time, the parliamentarian interest, including the poet John Milton, seems to have seized great quantities of the SPO's holdings and not returned them. In the restoration, the new keeper of the SPO, Joseph Williamson, who basically ran the English intelligence service, turned the SPO into a hub for collecting and disseminating intelligence in the form of a subscribers-only newsletter. A chief focus of his accessioning was retrieving SPO records from revolutionaries, some of whom were on the run with the records. They reasoned to be frightened because a clerk who had simply taken the minutes of the trial of Charles I was charged as a regicide. Williamson was an enthusiastic cataloguer, but not a consistent one, and he confused matters by including his own working papers in his finding aids for the SPO itself, and his habit of keeping SPO volumes in his home meant that a lot of these were ultimately lost to the SPO. Unlike the public records, the collections can't really be said to have played a major role in politicised historical research. This was because hardly anyone could get to use them, as they were only accessible, according to Wilson's oath of office, to the Privy Council and the Lords. Wilson handled research requests very restrictively, as he was required to do. Mostly, the papers were used for internal policy research by statesmen and for briefing ambassadors. Wilson tried to find ways to augment his income by finding research ideas that suited the Crown's agenda. For example, in the context of James's reconquest of Ireland, he suggested a, cont a continuation of the official history of that country, exploiting the previously unused materials of the state paper office and involving his good friends. Overall, Wilson complained that the collections were not being used, and it must be said that this was a flaw in the whole system because he couldn't make the office pay by levying external research fees. But there were a couple of apparent use cases worth noting. Cotton was allowed to, to collect autographs of famous men from letters that were deemed otherwise uninteresting, and he was also allowed to use and ultimately hang on to papers from the SPO to verify Camden's history Britannia. The Earl of St Albans is rumoured to have been allowed to take out many Henrician papers from the SPO, so that they were ultimately lost, and letters from ambassadors to Constantinople were apparently lent out for a history of Turkey. But none of these uses seem to me to be overtly political. The SBO's content seemed to have been used for programmatic purposes much later on, such as for Gilbert Burnett's official government-sponsored history of the English Reformation in 1679, and Roger Lestrange's official history of the Civil Wars, as well as a collection of, of important papers of state made by the King's Stationer. Sure. Um, thank you for, for all that description. And I was um, really impressed while reading your book by the level of archival research that I could see you did. Uh, and there's there's so much detail in everything you've written about. I was wondering if you could share a little bit with listeners about what that process looked like and the types of archival materials you were able to find in order to study this period of archival and records history. Thank you very much. I had the good fortune to be doing research on a heavily centralized nation, which meant that London contained pretty much everything I needed, which was great. Uh, but because I was working full time, I did not have the ability to make repeated archival trips. So I blocked off two weeks in November 2018 to visit the National Archives and the British Library in the hopes of getting everything I needed. And on the whole, I did because I got great 
research tips from both of them in advance. Altogether, I took about 6,000 photos of sources for 10 hours every day and made notes at the same time on aspects that leapt out at me. In the case of the state paper office, I'd found out in advance that research requests were likely to be found in the SPO's own internal papers, so I ordered and photographed much of that series. Alongside these sources, I read the legal and constitutional writings of many of the actors involved and numerous finding aids and records editions from the time. Though, of course, in the case of Prynne, there is no meaningful distinction between these and his political writings. I also found some amazing observations in the memoirs of Pepys and Aubrey. As well, I was able to get additional insight and great context from the fantastic Stuart Records calendars made by the meticulous Victorian historian and archivist, Mary Ann Everett Green, who was a very interesting individual in her own right. One thing that I found very helpful, at least for my writing, was that in many cases, nothing was done for centuries to reform the records till the 19th century. <laughs> so that reports from then of the state in which the records were found often illuminate a much, much earlier time. Uh, many of these institutional sources from the PRO have been digitized and put online, which was an absolute boon, especially during the COVID period. And the part on the constitutional debates used a close reading of the fantastic Yale edition of the Commons Debates of 1628. The really ambitious two-week archives trip. I'm impressed um, by that. Um, and I was also really curious, um, I guess, on, on some takeaways that we can think about today. Uh, because the history that you've written about is, is many centuries in the past, but there were a lot of parts of your book that felt really resonant with current circumstances. And so I was wondering um, what your perspective is on what takeaways from your research um, maybe stand out as relevant to people working in archives today. Yeah, I often had that feeling when I was doing the research. Um, it was a bit spooky at times. So <laughs> I would say that the most important point is not to fall for the widespread myth that archives are dusty and obscure and somehow unimportant everyday life and politics, and to realize the tremendous power of archives and the impact that our choices as archivists can have on people's lives. Of course, this ties into the constant theme in the book and throughout the centuries of underfunding of archival institutions because their vital role in society has not been properly appreciated. The question of who and what is remembered and how is extremely charged these days, and my research suggests that archives and archivists were also highly politicised in the early modern constitutional struggle, with keepers of the records in the Tower of London using their roles to produce and publish historically based propaganda about the true nature of the English constitution. The 17th century is also a very interesting time from a social perspective because the minor aristocracy, otherwise known as the gentry, who owned comparatively small amounts of property, were becoming a powerful new force in common law and politics and challenging the hegemony of the great aristocrats. And it's interesting that they were mostly on the side of individual civil and judicial rights. One thing that the book does make clear, and I think it's quite inspiring generally, not just for archivists, is how a very small group of determined individuals, if they're in the right place at the right time, can effect significant change. Without Cork, and arguably even more without Selden's forensic analysis of the precedents, to show that the balance of precedent was in favour of the parliamentary interpretation that would be laid out in the Petition of Right, the Anglo-American constitutional tradition would probably look very different today.
The postmodern critique of archives has often been interpreted by archivists as a statement about the actual historical nature of individual government archives, portraying them in an undifferentiated way as only ever part of hegemonic power structures intrinsically and always on the side of the oppressor. This has created a blind spot for the ways in which archives and archivists have been disruptive throughout the centuries, and particularly for this story about their challenge to the rise of absolutism in England. It also obscures the key importance of archives as repositories of legal precedents to the maintenance of fundamental civil rights. That's not to say, though, that the key insight of postmodern archival theory is not important, that records are created through the lens of those government actors who produce them, a process and focus that tend to further marginalize disadvantaged groups in society. It's rather the case that this recognition of the reality of the skewed perspectives in the records themselves has obscured the more complex roles of archives as institutions and archivists as actors in power struggles. The stark contrast between the political natures of the publicly accessible repositories and the secret of state paper office is, is arresting and indicates that public access to archives helps to support individual freedoms and an open civil society, whereas secrecy does the opposite. So this time also makes a strong case for public access to archives. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I've taken a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I'd really love to give you an opportunity to share anything that you're working on next. I'm curious if there are any projects you're working on that have emerged out of this book, or if you're working on something entirely different now that this one is done. So I, I do have some notes and research stuff left over from the project. I had to cut quite a few things out, partly because they were quite far outside the time frame that I was supposed to be examining. <laughs> So I have put those to the side and I'll come back to that at some point. Right now, my major focus is on my online magazine, Albion, which concentrates on English history and culture and just celebrated two decades in January. So I'm very happy about that. I'm currently planning the content of a couple of special editions together with my fantastic team, which we'll publish in spring and autumn. And after that's done, I'll see about returning to more scholarly work in my free time. Amazing. Congratulations on 20 years of that magazine that's great um well thank you so so much isabel and once again i've been speaking today with isabel taylor the author of the crown and its records archives access and the ancient constitution in 17th century england my name is jen hoyer and you're listening to new books network